Welcome to Tell Us About It, Victim Research Convos, a podcast from the Center for Victim Research with support from the Office for Victims of Crime. On each episode of Tell Us About It, we talk to researchers and practitioners about their work, the tools being built for use in the field, and how we can work together to build an evidence base for crime victim services. I'm here with Meredith Dank, a research professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. While with the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center, Meredith conducted two innovative research studies focused on youth victims of trafficking. She's here with us today to talk about the process of interviewing those young people and the role partnerships with practitioners played and continues to play in her work. Welcome, Meredith. Thank you very much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be able to speak with you today. You have a great reputation as a researcher in this area, working with teen victims of human trafficking. And we wanted to get your thoughts on the complexities of researching this potentially vulnerable population. To start out with, can you share a little about the research you've done in the area of human trafficking, the scope of the studies, and a little bit about what you found? Sure. So specific to the two studies that you had mentioned, um, I worked uh, when I was a doctoral student on the first study at John Jay College, looking specifically at the commercial sexual exploitation of children in New York City. Um, and through using a innovative at the time a methodology called respondent-driven sampling, we were able to interview over 300 young people about their experiences. Um, and, you know, based on those findings, you know, one of the, the bigger findings to come out of that was that this is an extremely complex issue and um, it impacts uh, young people from, you know, all genders, all sexual orientations and all different kinds of backgrounds. Um, and based on, on those findings, um, we were able to get uh, additional government funding through the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention to focus specifically on um, LGBTQ youth, young men who have sex with men and young women who have sex with women to document uh, their specific experiences engaging in survival sex and being commercially sexually exploited. Can you tell me a little bit about the uh, that innovative research technique you mentioned? I think you said it was responsive human sampling. It's respondent-driven sampling, and uh, the methodology is is essentially snowball sampling, uh, but definitely more systematic. And uh, you know, you're able to generate population estimates with the data that you collect. Uh, so, with the first study, we we did um, generate an estimate. With the second study, we didn't use it for that purpose. But the way that it works is, uh, you find seeds, and usually that's through partnership, uh, very important partnerships with local community-based organizations. Um, and these seeds are, are young people who are the brave souls to come forward who meet the criteria. So in this case, they had to have traded sex for money, food, shelter, clothing, et cetera, um, in New York and be between the ages of 13 to 21. And so they come in and um, we incentivize that them for, for coming and being interviewed. And then they can refer um, up to three people within their network who also meet the criteria uh, to come in and be interviewed as well. So it kind of snowballs from there. And that's how with the first study, we were able to get 300. And then with the second study, we were able to get also around 300. Okay. Tell me a little bit about what you found in that first study that you said led to the second study. 
Again, we found that uh, the study is very much not a black and white issue. So I think that when you're thinking of commercial sexual exploitation and or human trafficking, um, people often want to couch it into these, this black and white issue of bad and good. But what we found um, through directly through the voices of the young people that we interviewed is that, um, you know, how they get involved and and why they may stay involved is often quite complex. So in certain cases, young people are definitely being forced um, by a third-party exploiter. But um, in, in many other cases, these young people are um, entering into this um, as a means of survival. This is how they're getting you know, food. This is how they're getting some form of shelter um, and having their basic needs met, um, oftentimes because their options are incredibly limited if there are options at all to be able to make some money. If people wanted to find out more about the studies and the results that you found, where could they look? Uh, for that first study the, um, that I did when I was a doctoral student, you could go online. It's through NCJRS, uh, but also if you just Google commercial sexual exploitation and my last name, it usually pops up. Um, and then the other research that I've done on human trafficking, including the study with LGBTQ youth, um, all of those reports are available for free on the um, Urban Institute website, which is www.urban.org. Great. Thank you. Now, all research involving human subjects requires procedures to obtain consent and protect the participants. What does this look like when you're working with such a vulnerable population, these young people engaged in commercial sex trafficking? Are there special considerations or challenges in being trauma-informed and victim-centered in this context? Uh, you know, I think with just interviewing human sub or, or doing research around human subjects can take, you have to take a lot of, um, in a lot of considerations. But I think specifically for a population like this, um, there are additional considerations that you, you need to, to work out. So for example, um, I think confidentiality, um, is extremely important for this population. They're incredibly vulnerable. Um, oftentimes, have had um, experiences and run-ins with law enforcement, the child welfare system. So in order for them to feel comfortable talking to you, you have to ensure that this will, whatever is discussed will remain confidential and will not be tied back to them in any way. So obviously also making sure that um, it remains anonymous is important as well. So no names are recorded. Um, if other names of individuals in their lives are, um, are discussed, then obviously pr telling them that that information will be redacted from any transcripts and certainly wouldn't show up in any final deliverables is in incredibly important. So I think creating a safe space and, um, you know, trying to establish that trust from the very beginning is, you know, paramount to making this uh, kind of research work. Um, and if they feel that you're sincere and that, you know, this is indeed um, a safe space in which they can talk about these oftentimes incredibly traumatizing experiences, um, then, of course, that um, they will hopefully open up to you. Um, in addition to that, given the level of trauma and PTSD that many of them have experienced over time, you know, also making sure that um, the research staff is, is trained on how to um, spot indicators of trauma, um, particularly acute trauma that might be happening at the time of the interview, 
so that um, either a break can be um, given to the interviewee um, and or the interview can be stopped. So I think that there's additional training that I think is incredibly important to be able to do this type of research uh, in in an ethical way. So what steps did you take to try to build this trust and lay the groundwork for uh, for the interviews in your outreach phase or your recruitment phase? One of the first things um, that I did, particularly for the, the second um, study, I learned some lessons with the first one. And um, one of those big lessons was uh, really it's important to have your interviewers um, reflect those that you're interviewing. So um, I, for the LGBTQ study, uh, went and um, trained, hired and trained a handful of young people who were LGBTQ identified and in some cases had um, engaged in trading sex for survival themselves or and or had a large network of friends who did do that. Um, and, you know, I think that this was able to establish, uh, again, a sense of trust and, and, and safety for the young people we were hoping to interview because they saw themselves oftentimes reflected in the interviewers. Um, and so there was a, a sense of these people get me. Um, I can open up up about these um, experiences without feeling judged or stigmatized in some way. That sounds like a a very thoughtful strategy. But when you are using interviewers or researchers from this same population, uh, are there special um, trauma-centered practices that you need to have in place for the interviewers themselves? Absolutely. I think vicarious trauma is an issue that is not often discussed or, you know, researched itself when it comes to researchers. And I think that, you know, obviously it was a huge plus for us to train um, these young people to conduct the interviews. But I think that given their own um, maybe trauma uh, that they're that they've been dealing with over time, hearing these traumatic stories can be incredibly triggering to them as well. So making sure that there are regular, um, and by regular, at minimum, weekly check-ins and supervision check-ins, whether it be as a group or individually, um, is incredibly important for the mental health of the interviewers as well, making sure that they are um, able to process some of the stuff that they're hearing in a in a positive or okay way, um, and then intervening um, if they are not able to do that. Do you have any information from these young interviewers uh, about the the impact of the project? Did they find it overall um, empowering or or more traumatic? I absolutely think it was definitely more of an empowering experience. I think, you know, being able to work on a study like this, they understood the importance, they understood that it could have an incredible amount of impact um, on the lives of these young people by hopefully improving programs that are out there and policies um, around, you know, getting these young people assistance. So, you know, despite maybe some of the, the, the triggering and other negative consequences of doing research like this. I think the um, it was definitely more of an empowering experience for them. So I know the process of conducting this research was a long road, and it required building a lot of relationships with practitioners and then, you know, reaching out to the uh, this 
research subject pool. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of finding the people to interview? Sure. Uh, going back to what I had said earlier um, about establishing um, really good partnerships with local community-based organizations um, is, you know, can make or break your your project when you do something like this. So it, that does require a, a quite a bit of trust building. Um, you know, a lot of these organizations that are working with this vulnerable population, which is oftentimes runaway and homeless youth, um, and or specific to trafficked youth um, are going to have probably more questions for you than you will have for them as to what your intentions are. Uh, you know, they oftentimes feel that they are in some ways the gatekeepers and trying to protect the young people that they're serving and obviously don't want to be triggering them or re-traumatizing them in certain ways. So I think, you know, making sure that any researcher who's doing a study like this builds in that time to build those relationships with the community-based organizations is incredibly important because they're the ones who are going to be able to identify those initial young people for you to interview. Can you tell us more about the role that these practitioners played throughout your research process at the recruitment stage, the interview stage, maybe interpreting findings? How were practitioners engaged? So the with the second study, the LGBTQ um, study, we I, we actually partnered with a local community based organization, Streetwise and Safe. So they were our our partners throughout the entire study. But um, and so that's how we were able to recruit the the young people to train as interviewers was through their peer leadership program. But then the additional community based organizations in the New York City area, um, you know, in some cases, we had them <clears throat> review our interview protocols to provide feedback. Um, you know, they helped us identify young people for us to pilot our protocols on to make sure that the uh, the wording um, and the uh, questions were, you know, appropriate and sensitive to um, them. And then you know, as far as the recruitment goes and continuing that relationship, um, you know, we did occasionally have to go back to them to help us identify additional young people, um, you know, just keeping them abreast of how the study is going, kind of what the findings are. Um, and then, you know, <clears throat> during either the writing stage or even after they're written, making sure that you're briefing them maybe before releasing um, all the findings uh, about what you found is also a way to kind of keep them engaged and, um, you know, making sure that if they do have some important feedback that that's incorporated before the findings are released. So given all your experience, and particularly the way you just talked about keeping those practitioners engaged, I'd love to focus on a few key takeaways and pieces of advice. I know sometimes practitioners have bad experiences working with researchers. How can practitioners make sure that the researchers that are interested in working with them will take the right approach? Um I think that on the side of practitioners is to make sure that you are also vetting the researchers. So it will kind of go, you know, both sides are probably going to be vetting each other, but the practitioners making sure that you are questioning the researchers around their ethical procedures or ethical considerations, you know, 
what they plan to do as far as how they plan on recruiting, um, what kind of uh, information is included in the consent form, with, particularly around um, confidentiality, privacy, and um, you know, making sure that the young people understand that they can stop the interview or survey at any time, um, or uh, you know, skip certain questions, that sort of thing. So really questioning, you know, how this information is being communicated to that young person. Um, and also, if I were a practitioner, I would, you know, really want to make sure that the researchers are able to provide some sort of resource at the end of any um, interaction with a young person, whether they decide to participate in the interview or not. Um, but, you know, a resource list with organizations in the neighborhood where they can seek additional help, whether it be counseling or food or housing or that sort of thing. Um, and also, I think, you know, incentives are a big part and making sure that you are um, compensating the the young people for their time for meeting with you, I think is also something that practitioners should be asking about. So incentives is another key piece to ensuring that this um, these kind of research works um, and is successful. And practitioners, that's one of the first questions that I often get is, you know, are you able to compensate, monetarily compensate um, these young people for their time? And I think it's, you know, a big part in being able to um, get people to participate, but also I think from a practitioner standpoint, point. Um, I think it, they want to make sure that we are taking this seriously and we understand that a young person is taking time out of their schedule to meet with us and is being compensated for that. Okay. So you were both showing that you valued the interviewee's time and you were leaving them with something positive with the, the resource list. Correct. So you talked about um, needing a two-way vetting process. What should researchers look for? when they're looking for a practitioner partner? I believe that uh, researchers should make sure that, first of all, at least some of the practitioners that they're partnering with are staffed in a way that they can provide um, some immediate services to the young people that um, you may be interviewing who might need some immediate counseling or some immediate sort of intervention. Um, and that might, you know, I don't think you rec can require all practitioners to be able to provide that, but making sure you have a good balance is um, incredibly important. I also think that um, that if you do partner with certain practitioners, uh, making sure that they are fully committed to um, seeing the research through, that they understand the importance of the research, that they understand that in order to complete the research, they need to um, provide X, Y, and Z, whether that be identifying and recruiting young people for the study, or in some cases, even some data collection. Um, and, you know, it's obviously really important that they see whatever they agree to do all the way through, um, because, again, they're such an important part to um, the study. And so having that strong partnership and being researchers being able to rely on those practitioners to deliver is, is incredibly important.
So are there any steps that researchers or practitioners should take during this process to make sure that the relationship stays strong and collaborative? Again, I think making sure that they remain engaged. So frequent check-ins with them, I mean, as frequent as they would want, right? But I think, you know, keeping them abreast on how the study is going, kind of if there's anything incredibly important you're learning that could be useful to them and their programming or the way that they're structuring their organization, you know, providing that feedback loop is is really important to keeping the that, I think, collaboration really strong. Um, and just making sure that they're also part of um, the dissemination as well. I think that having the practitioner voice um, when you are disseminating the findings is incredibly important, especially when you're doing um, applied research that you're hoping impacts um, policy in addition to um, how programs are operated. You know, having that practitioner buy-in and being able to support, you know, what you've learned and figure out ways and recommendations and how to maybe implement change is, is really important. And so I think just keeping them engaged throughout the course of the research, which can be sometimes hard, um, but I think it's important to make that time to do that. So I like to ask this of all our guests. What do you envision for this area of research, uh, human trafficking of, of minor victims, maybe five years from now? What additional research should we be looking to build in this area? I think there's still a huge gap when it comes to prevention. Um, you know, we do a lot around intervention, trying to figure out ways in which to help those young people who might already be um, involved in this. And, you know, we still have a long way to go there, particularly around evaluating the programs um, and assistance that's out there currently. We don't have a good sense of exactly what works well. But I think where we're really lacking is how we prevent young people from ever being put in a situation where they're either being recruited or forced into choosing this as an option given limited other options. Um, you know, I think that we really need to do a better job in um, figuring out ways in which we can just prevent this all from happening to begin with. That's a wonderful thought to leave our audience with. Meredith, thank you so much for your time today and for for all the lessons you've been able to share with our audience. I really appreciate your expertise and your willingness to educate the rest of us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tell Us About It. If there are research and practice experts you'd like us to interview or tools from the field you'd like us to discuss on this podcast, email us at podcast at victimresearch.org. Tell Us About It is a production of the Center for Victim Research, funded by the Office for Victims of Crimes Vision 21 Initiative through Cooperative Agreement Number 2016-XV-GX-K006. The Office for Victims of Crime is part of the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs. However, the points of view and opinions discussed on this podcast are those of the host and expert contributors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice.